This morning we are come by my count up to the eighth message out of the Exodus Plus series or Freedom and Beyond or Get Us Being Set Free, all about the great events in uh, the Old Testament associated with the Lord leading his people out of Egypt to the mountain where he teaches them and then beyond into the land. The way the lessons have unfolded in the previous weeks, so if we could have that list on the sign, uh, screen, here's where we've been so far. We looked at the God who hears our cry. He heard the cry of his people in Egypt. He's the God who calls. Of course, we saw that in the, the story of the burning bush, God calling Moses, Moses. He's the God who rescues Arguably the turning point of the entire Old Testament when God brings Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, a great rescue operation. He leads them on from there to Mount Sinai where he becomes the God who teaches. When he establishes the tabernacle or has them establish the tabernacle in their midst and then uh, fills it with his presence, he becomes the God who is in our midst. He's the God who corrects. In case any of us uh, still need that, he's still in business. The God who brings correction. He's the God, as Aaron uh, spoke last week, the God who gives us a choice or choices. And we are responsible and accountable to him, to what we choose. And, of course, at the end of Deuteronomy, we're strongly admonished by the Lord in Deuteronomy 28. Therefore, I set before you this day both death and life. Therefore, choose life that you may live. Now this morning, we want to follow this story into its uh, concluding uh, section where Israel is crossing the desert on the way to the land and they face some fateful, pivotal choices and God stands before us in what we're about to look at as the God we can trust, although in the story we're going to read, not everybody trusts him and exercises trust in him, but that's still the point of what we want to look at this morning. The God we can trust, and on the back of him being trustworthy, we receive a confidence that what he's asking us to do, namely go in and take the land, that we can indeed do it. We can certainly do this. And that's what um, Caleb says when there's this conflict. What should we do this is looking scary. We got a bad report back from the spies. Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. And Caleb stands up and says, referring to the conquest that's out in front of them, we can certainly do this. We'll see how that unfolds. So let, let me read you some scripture. You can follow along on the screen. Numbers 13, and um, this is edited just for the sake of not letting the, the reading get too terribly long. Numbers 13, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. Right there, that defines everything that's about to happen. What about the land? Is it conquerable? Well, God says, I'm giving it to them. That should settle the issue right there. So command these men, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like. And whether the people who live in it there are strong or weak, few or many. So the men went up and explored the land. 
When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them. That's how big this single cluster of grapes was. It needed two people with a pole in between them. That says something about the fruitfulness of this land. The land God's wanting to give his people was a good land. And they brought pomegranates and figs. Verse 25, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, the grapes on the pole. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak. They were called the Anakites or the Anakim, and they were, they were giants. Many of them were literal genetic exceptions to the rule, and they were exceedingly tall. One theory is that the famous Goliath had Anak blood in him. Then Caleb, verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people, because they're giving this negative report here. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of it. He's hearing this negative thing. This is going to be bad news. No, says Caleb, we should go up and take possession of it, of the land, for we can certainly do it. I'm hoping those words will resonate in our minds today and this week. We can certainly do it. I don't think any of us here have been getting, have been having a prophetic sense burning in our hearts that the Lord is saying 2018 is going to be an easy year. If you've had that, please come and tell me. I think there's going to be some challenges out there as there were for these people. But listen to Caleb. He says the right thing. We can certainly do it. Let's let that be our motto. Verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him said, No, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they and these, the, the ten spies, they spread among the Israelites a bad report. No, nothing more damaging to the people of God, to a local church, than if I go around spreading discouraging thoughts. They spread a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those who are living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Up into chapter 14. And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. But Joshua and Caleb said, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. See, one sign side is saying it devours its inhabitants. It's a scary place. But others are saying, notably Joshua and Caleb, 
This land is exceedingly good. Let's not miss out. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said, As surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I, did, I performed in Egypt will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Why? Because they believed they embraced lies. They embraced the negative report which contradicted the promise of good God had given them. What do we embrace? What are our minds embracing? Verse 29, In this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with an uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Now, the story fortunately does not end with that grim scene. There follows on from that 40 years of wandering. But at the end of the 40 years, here's what happens. We'll fast forward up to the book of Joshua, just a brief clip from this, and then we'll see what God has for us. Joshua 3, and the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Do we see what's happening here? Earlier in what we just read, the people were wanting to stone Joshua to death. Now he's being exalted by God himself as the new Moses. I'd say that is vindication. He stood for what was right. He embraced the truth instead of the lies. And God is honoring him. I'll be with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Note that little phrase, of the, the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. He's the Lord of all the earth. Even the scary parts. He's the Lord of all the earth. Verse 13, And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, do you get the feeling God's trying to tell us something here? Set foot in the Jordan, its waters stopped its waters will stop flowing downstream. Will, pardon me, I'm garbling this. As soon as they set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up, up in a heap. Verse 15. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Today, during that season of the year, the Jordan River can be one mile across. That's how wide it gets. It keeps overflowing its banks and Almost in a, an ironic sense of humor moment, that's when God orchestrates that they have to cross. At this time of year, it could have been as much as a mile wide. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet despite it being in this huge overflow and extraordinarily wide, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped 
flowing. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and they stood on dry ground. If we put up our antennae to remember echoes of pivotal scenes in the Bible before this, on dry ground is the trademark phrase of the exodus from Egypt because the, the sea opened up and Israel walked through the sea. How? On dry ground. Now, God is telling Joshua, I'm going to exalt you in the eyes of the people. I'm going to be with you the way I was with Moses. And so Joshua is involved in leading a replay of Israel's greatest experience, namely the crossing of the Red Sea through water, but on dry ground. That's called vindication. That's called a new beginning. As soon as they, st- and they, they stood on dry ground, the priests while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing. How? On dry ground. Whatever is going on around you, however many floods there may be, you can walk as we trust God on dry ground. Let's embrace that this morning. Two reports. The story we've just looked at begins with two conflicting reports, a bad one and a good one. The ten spies, by the way, of course, this is a subtle political uh, critique of democracy because democracy doesn't always work because sometimes the majority are wrong. (laughs) This time the ten had ten votes and the two had two. But the two were right and the ten were wrong. The ten were saying the land is a bad place. It devours its inhabitants. Who would want to journey a long distance and risk battles to conquer a place that devours its inhabitants. It's a negative report. It was sowing doubt. It was feeding bitterness and confusion. The people there are big, really big. Some of them are descended from Anak himself, the the father of the race of giants. In comparison to them, we were like little grasshoppers. That's how we saw ourselves. That's the perspective the majority report was bringing. That's the first report. That's the bad report. But praise the Lord, there was another report. It only had two advocates, but it was true. The other report was this. The land is, quote, exceedingly good. Even just those words, exceedingly good. Look, look at these grapes. We got tired carrying them all the way back. It was such a huge and heavy cluster. It's a sign. It's a land that's exceedingly good. Milk, honey. Do you know what it's, why the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, whenever they describe Canaan, it's always in good terms because the, the land God was giving them was meant to replace another place called the Garden of Eden. The word Eden is Hebrew for delight or delightful because it had all kinds of uh, splendid trees and fruit and animal life and everything. It was a beautiful place, but humanity lost that because of their sin. Well, why is God giving Israel a land? Because he knows people need a place and he's demonstrating what redemption's all about by picking one people out of all the peoples and giving them a land. It's like the new be- a new beginning of a new Eden. And that's why the goodness of this land is so pivotal. Joshua and Caleb understood this. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
It's a good place. What do you mean it devours people? Look at the fruit. It feeds people. The land is exceedingly good. The point, the, but even that point, the goodness of the place, is eclipsed by something else they say. Namely this, that God is giving us this land. God is giving us this land. They knew, these two knew, these two remembered, and these two weren't afraid to speak it out. Their family history, all the way back to Father Abraham, because God made some pretty industrial strength, heavy-duty promises to Abraham, including land, a good land. And that's why this is a doable thing. That's why they can have confidence about moving forward. Why? Because God is giving us this land. It's a great place. But the goodness of the land, that isn't even the real point here. There's something even bigger than that. Namely, it's the land God is giving us. The promises of God are wrapped up in this. We can certainly do it. We can certainly do it. What was the division between the ten and the two? I'd argue it's this. The ten forgot something and the two remembered it. The ten forgot that this is not just a group of people migrating from point A to point B. This is a people on a pilgrimage being led by God himself to a destination he had appointed, he had prepared, and he had promised them. It's about God's promises. They had forgotten those things, the ten The two, Joshua and Caleb, they were remembering. They were remembering that. And their whole view of what was to come with all its challenges, with all its dangers, with all its risks, Joshua and Caleb were looking at that whole sort of uncertain future because there was going to be some moments, some big battles. They were looking at that future through a pair of spectacles called the promises of God. God promised us this land. I met Velma in 1970 on YWAM. We're a YWAM couple. And at the beginning of the summer, they read us the riot act about no, no, no romancing during this team over the summer. Nothing. You don't hold hands. You don't wink. You don't, you know, nothing. It was very regimented and strict. Well, over the course of the summer, I started getting winks. Just once or twice. But, and I was winking back. And at the, at the end of the summer, we both thought God had something for us in the future. And we went to the fellow that was in charge that summer. It was out in B.C. It was the Canadian YWAM ministry in that particular year, 1970. And we thought just for accountability's sake, we would like to say something to someone that was in leadership. We went to the fellow, his name was Alvin Lewis. He used to be one of the pastors at Calvary Temple uh, years ago. And we said, here's what's happening. We wonder if maybe God has a future for us together. And you know, he just looked at us and smiled. He actually went on to do our wedding ceremony when we got married. And he said, but this is, you know, two or three years before any kind of wedding. He just looked at us and said, well... Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. 
You know what that's called? Philippians 1.6, that's called a promise. If you have times in your walk with God when you think, not only is my car stalled, I think it's rolling backwards. We all have that. If you think, you know, looking back, I think a year ago, I was probably in better shape spiritually than I am right now. The car is rolling backwards. Well, that can happen. If you sensitively read some of the Psalms, there was time some of the Psalmists, including the great King David, felt like they were going backwards instead of forward. All right, we recognize that. We're flesh and blood. We're weak. But we've got some pretty strong promises from a promise-keeping God. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Saints, married couples, whoever, can I encourage you? Take, that's Philippians 1, verse 6. It's a good one to put on a 3 by 5 card and put it on your refrigerator. Look at whatever's going on. We're not sure how we're going to pay the rent this week or this month. Whatever's going on, look at it through the spectacles of the promises of God. That's what's kept Velma and me. You may be shocked to know this, but my wife has never nominated me for Easiest Husband of the Year Award. (laughs) You're probably all thinking that that's what I'm like, but she could disabuse you of that impression. So what keeps us? Well, the promises. We've had some seasons in our life. We lost a child in the 80s. Our son now is is quite sick uh, since last year, this time last year, and other stuff. It's not been an altogether easy ride. But has God's promise changed? No. Does God's character change? No. We know how, I don't know if we hold on to it with proper strength and zeal, but we know what Joshua and Caleb knew. We've got promises. God said, had told Abraham, that land is going to belong to your descendants. And Joshua and Caleb were holding on to that. That's why the good report was so different from the bad. Okay, two outcomes. Let's see now, because there's, among the people of Israel, you've got these two reports going along, a bad news one and a good news one. Tragically, Israel, by and large, embraces the bad news. So there's two outcomes, very different. One is death and one is victory. The two outcomes. God declares, because the people as a whole embrace the bad news report, that they will wander for 40 years. They will indeed enter the land, but 40 years late. The Exodus generation that saw the actual major events of the crossing of the Red Sea, the plagues and all that, they will die in the wilderness. Some of their children 20 years younger, 19 years and younger, who didn't complain against Moses, they get to continue. It's in the middle of chapter 14. God makes that exception, sign of mercy in the midst of judgment. But then the next generation will enter. That is the generation of people born in the wilderness. 
Interesting place to get born, isn't it? A trackless desert where the only way you survive is if God happens to drop bread out of the sky each morning and you realize, you know what, if he decides to shut off the bread, we will starve. That's an interesting place for birth and infancy. I don't think too many How to Raise Children books recommend having kids in the desert. But an entire generation had kids in the desert, and they were the ones that went on to enter and to conquer the land, the next generation. Joshua, the one that the people wanted to stone along with Caleb, he will become another Moses. And God gives him some very dramatic signs that that's the case. I'll be with you as I was with Moses. Remember Moses had his take off your shoes moment at the burning bush? Take off your shoes, Moses, those sandals. That's holy ground. Well, later in Joshua, I think it's chapter 5. I won't vouch for the the reference, but but Joshua has the identical word-for-word experience. He meets an angel, and he's talking back and forth to the angel. He he asks an interesting question. Are you for us or for those other guys, the, the Canaanites? And I love the angel's answer. You know what he says? He says, no. Wait a minute, are you with us or for them? No. What kind of answer is that? That's an angel answer. He says, I'm here as the captain of Yahweh's army. That's why I'm here. Now you, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. See, this, it meant to, the take off your shoes thing was meant to remind Joshua and us, as we read it, of what happened earlier with Moses. This is a new Moses whom God is raising up. And then, of course, the parting of the, the Red Sea, and it's replayed in the parting of the Jordan River. They follow the ark across the river. What's inside that ark? Well, the word of God. It's a great picture for us of the word. The tablets that God gave Moses at Sinai are inside there. It's a picture of the power of the word to break through barriers, to break through obstacles. Everyone that was involved in this part of the story, if we could have our next slide comes to one of those two outcomes, the desert or the crossing of the Jordan. Now here is the tragic and very sobering way that these scenes link up. If we believe the ten spies, the ones that were going on about how big the giants were, we were like grasshoppers. If you believe their gospel, the picture shows where you would end up. Believing the negative report led to falling in the desert. However, God is never without a witness, ever. It says that in the book of Acts. God will not be without a witness. So his witness in this moment, we just came down to a couple of people, Joshua and Caleb. They said it's a good land. Big giants, but bigger God. Because he's promised we can certainly do it. That's the gospel according to Joshua and Caleb. We can certainly do it. And if we believe that gospel, that message, that perspective, God leads us through the Jordan River following the Ark of the Covenant. We go through on dry ground. Just before we begin, we handed out some little handouts. Did you all get one? The ushers, I think, were... uh, I'm coming into conclusion here. This is a mercifully short message. I hope you appreciate this. (laughs) 
There's two voices. Another way to summarize this entire scene in the book of Numbers and into early chapters of Joshua is that there are two voices. At any point in biblical history, at any point in your life, at any point in our life here as a congregation, there's always going to be voices, plural. And in some ways they distill down to two. The question is, which one are we listening to? One voice says the enemies are too big. To which Joshua and Caleb reply, well, yes, I saw those guys too. And yeah, the boys here are right. Some of those giants in there were really, really tall and really scary. Yes, they're big, but God is bigger. You know what? That is Sunday school theology. And it's powerfully true. Sure, they're big, but God is bigger. Whatever you're up against today, this week, it may look big to you. Fair enough. God is bigger. God is bigger. Take a dose of Joshua and Caleb theology. The enemies are big. The ten spies were saying something else. They're saying, let's play it safe. Let's play it safe. Let's not get carried away. I've heard about these wacky charismatics and they get these crazy prophetic words telling them to go off to Booga Booga land or somewhere. You know, you know what's going on here? No, play it safe. Let's calm down. Not, let's not get carried away. Play it safe. And their version, the ten spies and their followers of playing it safe was, let's appoint a new leader. We've had it with Moses. Let's appoint a new leader, someone a bit more reasonable, and go back to Egypt. That voice can be sometimes terribly persuasive. We might not think of saying, I'm going to stop following the Lord, but I'm just going to go into neutral. Fooey. I've had it with this Christian thing. We're always pressing on. I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to go into neutral. Play it safe. Go back to Egypt. Well, what did Joshua and Caleb say? He's the God we can trust. Let's risk all for him. Let's risk all for him. It was great to hear Sylvie's testimony this morning, taking some risks going to China. Brilliant. May that be an example for our whole church. Let's risk all for him. Here's a, a scripture just to jot in your margins. We won't study it, but I want to refer you to it. Acts, Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 15, verse 26. Acts 15, verse 26. This is in the, it's part of the wording of the letter that the church in Jerusalem writes out to be distributed to churches around about where the gospel was moving out. And there was a big controversy about what about if Gentiles come into the church? Do they have to obey the Leviticus food laws? Do they have to submit to circumcision and, and, and so forth? All these regulations. And it was a big controversy. So they sat down. They had a conference. You can read about it in Acts 15. As part of this, the letter commends St. Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul, the two apostles, to the church all over the Mediterranean world. 
And it describes Barnabas and Paul this way. Just listen to these words. I love it. Men, Acts 15, 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you like that? They didn't commend Barnabas and Paul because they were wowie-zowie preachers. They didn't commend them because, you know, I, they, I lay, they laid their hands on me and I fell down laughing or something like that. God can work that way. I don't want to mock it, mock it. But that's not the kind of thing for which the church council commended Barnabas and Paul. The church commended Barnabas and Paul as risk takers. We've said probably a dozen times already this morning, the land was promised. God promised the land to Israel. But if you know where to look, there were a goodly number of battles on the way to securing the land. And in a battle, both sides take losses. And in any given battle, on any given day, when the Israelite army would charge into it, probably everyone in the Israelite army was thinking, I may come home to my wife and kids tonight, and I may not. There is risk in this. He's the God we can trust, so let's risk all for him. Joshua and Caleb preferred the risk to the safety. It was the ten spies and their followers. They, they were the ones saying, let's play it safe. Let's go back to Egypt. This morning, can I commend myself, encourage myself to be a risk taker for Christ? Can I encourage our whole church family here? Let's let 2018 be a year for risk taking. If things blow up on us, okay. God's bigger than the blow ups. Let's be risk takers. He's the God we can trust. Let's risk all for him. Finally, it's not just any land we're entering. It's the promised land. We've heard that little phrase so many times, the promised land. We forget what it means. It means the land God had promised. There was a promise attached to this place. Most of you here probably at some point have purchased a home and you get the deed or a copy of the deed showing that you're the owner. You know what it says on the deed for Canaan? Owned by God, hence that phrase we've seen a couple of times, he's the Lord of all the earth. But because he's the Lord of all the earth, he can give specific pieces of the earth to whomever he jolly well pleases. In this case, it's Israel. And he has promised Canaan to Israel. It's not just any land. It's the land he has promised. Now here's, I conclude with this. Because that's how they saw the land, and because that's how they saw the coming challenges and risks of entering that land, it gave them confidence. And they said these words, we can certainly do it. We can certainly do it. If you've got room in the 3 by 5 card that I said that you should write Philippians 1, 6 on for the front of your refrigerator, at the bottom of that card, write this. We can certainly 
do it. That's chapter th- Numbers 13, verse 30, and it's Caleb speaking. We can certainly do it. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the promises of God. They keep us alive. They keep us moving forward. Lord, there's been many, many times I have just thrown up my hands and said, I just can't do this Christian thing anymore. I'm worn out. But Lord, you come and refresh us when we're worn out. And you rekindle in our hearts confidence in you because you are the God who can be trusted. And you rekindle in us confidence in your promises and you rekindle in us. We ask you to do it this morning for any who need it in a particular way. The confidence that whatever needs to happen, perhaps especially in the short term, a conversation I need to have with somebody, whatever it might be, that we would approach that the way Joshua and Caleb did and say, we can certainly do it. Lord, would you enable those words to become like a banner for this church in the coming weeks? We can do it. In Jesus' name and for his honor and glory, amen.